your work life, your relationships, your money, your health, the meaning of life. Welcome to How to Do Life with Marty Nemco. One of my qualifications to talk to you about health, I'm not an MD, although I do teach in the medical school at the University of California, San Francisco. Um, my real qualification is that uh, from when I was a child, I was worried about dying young. I, was, I remember being 10 years old and lying in bed, unable to fall asleep, and calculating in my head, well, let's see, the average life expectancy is 70. Um, I'm 10. That means I have uh, six-sevenths of my life left. That's 83%. I mean, that was the kind of crazy kid I am. And that's, unfortunately, pretty much um, my fear of death and especially dying has <clears throat> stayed with me my entire life. Um, and now I am approaching 70. I'll be 70 in uh, June. And um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about health. Um, but despite my... Uh, let's just say, thorough thinking about it. I like to think that I've taken quite a moderate approach to, to the maintaining of health. I'm not somebody who chases fads, but who makes a careful uh, assessment of what's worth doing and not worth doing in terms of probabilities. There's no guarantees, and especially as we enter the, the world of precision medicine, um, there's going to be far more individual advice. So this generalized advice uh, may not be uh, stand the test of time, but certainly it has stood the test of time. And so I'm going to share with you my best thoughts about diet, about exercise, about stress management, about substance abuse, about mental health, and about preparing for your doctor's appointments. Okay, diet. Um, you know, of course, we all know there's this huge industry that's made a fortune. Um, uh, selling the diet du jour from the South Beach diet to keto. And uh, very quickly, there's usually evidence that A, the diet doesn't work, or that it's got side effects that outweigh its advantages. And I like to th I'm like i starting to see already that there are some significant disadvantages of keto. And the, the logic to me, for example, of intermittent fasting, <clears throat> while there is some good evidence in its favor, uh, I think it's too recent. It doesn't, you know, in the, the, the older I get and the more fads and trends that I've seen uh, in everything related, in everything but certainly related to health, the more I rely on common sense. For example, they used to tell you <clears throat> that, you know, hyper -vig vigorous exercise uh, was going to be most beneficial for you. And now they're finding that moderate exercise for longer. And it makes sense that running your heart rate at three times the normal rate for, you know, a half hour a day, or let alone the, 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 inter, the HIT, the intermittent training, <clears throat> for five minutes is long-term salubrious. Of course, when you're young, you can handle anything. And in itself, it's not going to kill you. But again, this is common sense, and I'm not an MD. You should indeed consult your trusted health professional. <coughs> Excuse me before you make any major uh, health decisions. But when I look at people who are uh, where in the passage of time in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, actually those that have been the most vigorous exercisers, excuse me a minute, <clears throat> those that have been the most vigorous exercisers do not 
have the greatest longevity. And in fact, as I look at their skin tone, which is approximately, you know, their amount of wrinkling and therefore cellular degeneration, um, as I look at the vigorous athletes, they don't seem to age well. And I believe that the longevity data for extreme athletes does not show that they'll live longer. So I'm a real fan of common sense and moderation regarding diet. Diets generally not work, and there is pretty good evidence over the long term that yo-yoing is not good for you. Your body does want to be a certain weight that is largely uh, determined by your genetics. And what I urge would be to eat, not go on diets, but accept your basic, unless you're morbidly obese, that is a BMI of over 30, that you accept your basic body type and then just, if you're going to try to control your calorie consumption, then do it simply in little baby increments. Eat a little, make a deal with yourself. You're going to eat, leave a bite or two on your plate. If there's one bugaboo that you have, let's say you love cheese as I do, decide that you're going to have no cheese in the house or one small packet every two weeks or something like that. Do the, you know, if you love going out to eat like I do, and I, uh, I, I say to myself, I have a rule. I'll eat one piece of bread, not two or three. I will order my favorite thing on the menu that is not high calorie. Little things like that over the long term can keep your weight under control. I, th I think that that really pretty well defines um, the uh, essence of what the literature says. And I seem to recall a Harvard Medical School study that, uh, or Harvard Health Letter study that found that that was indeed the wisest approach. Uh, it may not have been Harvard, it may have been Tufts, it may have been some, some you know, UC Berkeley's health letter, but some reputable source. And I'm, I'm not interested in the latest study because remember, professors get their, and researchers get their grants and their money based on the latest and greatest. I am interested, and, and that mitigate, that militates against having recommendations stand the test of time. So often they change their minds about what's good and what's bad. For years, they said that baby aspirin was good. Taking a baby aspirin was protective against heart attacks. Now they're saying stop. They were saying um, that butter was bad, margarine is good. Then they changed their mind about that. What really should, in my judgment, at least this is, I'm only speaking personally because I'm not an MD, is trust the things that have stood the test of time and are moderate. It can make, it does make sense that being obese is not going to be good for your health. Clear. Smoking, cigarette smoking, taking in that drug that clearly causes cancer is not going to be good for your health. The overwhelming, notwithstanding what the advocates would say, um, data on the effects of marijuana are terrible. Uh, increased cardiovascular risk, even in the young, memory issues, increased risk of mental health issues, even severe ones, you know, especially for teenagers, but in general, um, uh, it, it can't make sense to me that smoking, whether it's cigarettes or marijuana, which I believe, you know, is really, they've done a great job of marketing it, but I really don't think that that is going to be in our best interest as time goes on. And this is not, I'm not some right-wing reefer madness nut like they were talking about in the 1940s. This is really the summary of the research that is done by independent agencies and entities like, like major universities. Uh, and do Google... Uh, for example, the uh, marijuana dangers, and <clears throat> you'll see. Um, okay, um, that's all I think I want to say about diet. Uh, exercise, again, moderation, as I said, or said earlier. It, does, it makes most sense to me that you're going to, you want to get out of, I love the idea, and again, it passes my common sense test. 
Sitting is the new smoking. If you're sitting all the time, especially if you're older, your heart circulation is not as good. You are more likely to build up blood clots and things like that. Um, and it's simply, so I, I have this rule of thumb that when I start to feel itchy, uh, that could be, I don't mean literally itchy, I mean itchy to move around, and that's usually somewhere between 30 and 90 minutes, I honor my body and I get up and I'll do whatever. I will take a walk around the block with a dog. I will clean the toilets. I will vacuum. I will do some gardening for just a few minutes. And that, I believe, is likely to be very healthy. And again, no risk. I like low-risk actions. I think focusing on that and moderate exercise. I do take a, every day, I do take my dog out four times a day, both to keep him from ever having to cross his legs. But we, you know, it's very healthy. We take three short walks a day, uh, like five minutes, 10 minutes, uh, and then one 45-minute vigorous hike to get my cardiovascular excess. So it's, it is good to clear out the, the system uh, every day or most days. Now they say 30 to 45 minutes most days of the week. I tend to do that six or seven days a week. But if I miss a day, I don't beat myself up. So those are my thoughts about, um, uh, about diet and exercise stress. Um, a certain amount of stress is not going to kill you. But ongoing stress, especially anger, what they call type A behavior, really is a, is a tendency to get hot at most things and not have relatively calm acceptance. I like to think of myself as very fast-paced. That doesn't make me prone to heart. I don't believe that's increasing my cortisol risk or my blood pressure or whatever. Um, but it's when there's anger associated with it or rushing. Uh, I just am naturally fast. That's who I am. But uh, for example, as I'm talking to you, I'm not stressed at all. Um, so I do encourage you to try to think about reducing any tendency you might have to anger, which is the real dangerous stress. Realizing that in the end, anger gets you almost nowhere. It can get you in trouble at work. It can get you in trouble at home. Uh, even if you're not physically abusing your partner, which of course is terrible. Uh, you know, trying to maintain a sense of perspective taking little deep breaths. You don't need to meditate in my judgment, you know, although some people find it beneficial. Many of my clients don't. I used to meditate myself a long time ago. I did not find it was more beneficial than just a little nap. Uh, it did not yield any ongoing benefits. But having a sense of perspective, seeing how important is this really, doing your best but not pushing yourself beyond 90% or 95%, leaving you a little cushion, Having a sense of gratitude for the things that are good in your life and that other people may be less fortunate, easier said than done. But avoiding the anger is really important. Also control, to the extent to which you can control your life, your work life. Not have a boss who's micromanaging everything you're doing. That can be stress reducing. Doing work that is moderately challenging, so you're stimulated, but not so hard that you are, you're frustrated and scared or so easy that you are just going, you're going nuts because it's too easy and too repetitive. Those, that may be the world's shortest little corselet on, um, on stress management. And I think that that is a, um, uh, that's really, you know, that, com that combination of exercise, some perspective, trying to avoid being angry. Uh, you know, some people do go from zero to 60 in two seconds and it's harder. But when you, if you are one of those people, the best thing you can do would be when you first, that first nanosecond, you start to feel the anger well up in you. Excuse yourself so you don't say something you're going to regret. If it's somebody, that's something that somebody said that annoyed you, take a deep breath and say, excuse me, I got to go to the bathroom or whatever. Um, that I think is crucial to, um, 
to anger management and also avoiding uh, stress and the, the physical health problems that are associated with it. Now, I do want to talk about substance abuse. I talked about it briefly earlier, but I want to talk about it in a little more detail now. Um, you know, it's not like I haven't smoked marijuana. I have. It's not like I haven't drank. I do enjoy a glass of wine, one or two or three a week. Um, you know, it's not like I'm some purist here. That said, I have seen so many lives of my clients ruined and some friends because of abuse of tobacco, alcohol, and 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 drugs. Yes, I mean certainly if uh, if your MD, you know, not not a pot doctor, but your MD says, you know, I really think that marijuana would be appropriate for you for whatever. It's the treatment of choice for sleep or for pain reduction or uh, nausea reduction. Of course, of course, of course, of course. And even, you know, uh, hallucinogens. If I were at end stage, if I was dying, you know, bring out the LSD, bring out the mushrooms. Absolutely. But except in those circumstances, for people who do drugs for fun, to because they're bored, uh, to be more relaxed when they're in social situations, I would, and I, I, I'm saying this advisedly, I would beg you to try to find other approaches because I've seen lives so devastated, both in terms of physical health and mental health, motivation, memory, the whole package. And while people may smile at you <clears throat> as being the fun person at the party because you're high and you're saying all these outrageous things quietly, people whose respect you care about are not going to feel very good about uh, you being a person who is, the, they, they will look down upon you. So I, I beg you, I do beg you, and especially as a parent for your teens, to hug your teenager and say, I love you. Obviously, I can't monitor you every minute. I'm not here to be a full-time policeman or anything like that. But I beg you to hang out with kids who are not abusers of, of substances. There are, you know, as corny as it sounds, there are great ways to get high on life. That includes um, getting involved in theater or in sports or enjoying nature or writing or, you know, there's so much love, sex, the drug thing is really, is really, really, really problematic for most people. I will let you know that you are listening to How to Do Life. I am Marty Nemco. You're listening to How to Do Life with Marty Nemco. You can email Dr. Marty Nemco with your comments and questions at mnemko at comcast.net or for his articles and books, visit martynemco.com. Dot com. That's M-A-R-T-Y-N-E-M-K-O dot com. Now back to How to Do Life. Thanks for staying with me. We're talking, uh, this episode of How to Do Life is about your health. We've talked about diet. We've talked about exercise. We've talked about dealing with stress. We've talked about substance abuse. And now I want to talk about mental health. Um... We're learning, unfortunately, I think it is unfortunate, that ever more of who we are is genetic, a genetic predisposition to depression, to what we're calling ADHDs, you know, spaciness or hyperactivity, uh, uh, schizophrenia, etc., autism, uh, certainly ever more has a genetic component. Uh, and it's far beyond the scope of this, uh, this radio program to, uh, to talk about um, severe mental illness. But for the garden variety anxiety uh, and mild depression, perhaps some of the following 
again, our really common sense approaches to, uh, to mental health, I think may be worth it. I first want to talk about, uh, no, let me say it this way. Many people are benefited through psychotherapy, um, sometimes revisiting the trauma of your childhood <clears throat> can provide insights that enable you to move forward. And more often, the briefer cognitive behavioral therapy that corrects your erroneous thinking, for example, uh, undue fears of failure or rejection, can help you move forward. But I have so often seen that people who have done therapy end up being no better in many ways worse. Now, I'm not talking about the time and money they spent on therapy, but they become more self-absorbed. And the biggest thing is the thing that they keep focusing on in therapy, that trauma, whatever, that their, their parents said they were too dumb to succeed or that their husband left them or that their, their boss unfairly fired them or they were raped or whatever, as bad as that is, the more you talk about it, after just a brief amount of processing, you're less likely to get new insights and more likely to have the, the negative feelings be top of mind, which keep you mired in the past, keep you mired in sadness and or anger. My clients and I have found it infinitely more helpful to, as soon as you start revisiting that past trauma, to consciously say stop and distract yourself to something constructive, whether it be a work thing or a relationship thing or even cleaning your toilets. The more you do that, the more you are going to atrophy the memory neurons associated with the painful thought and be more likely to move forward. I have a friend, for example, who lost his wife three, weeks, three months ago. And he is a psychotherapist. And he did the traditional thing. He ended up processing it and grieving it and talking to all his friends about it and joining a therapy group about it. And you know what? He was no better three months later. He was crying all the time. I then suggested that he try this technique of as soon as he thinks about his wife, especially the bad parts about the relationship, the good parts about the relationship. I said it was okay to think a little bit about the bad stuff. But um, as soon as he started to think about his, his wife and the good parts of the relationship, he is to say stop and redirect himself to something constructive, whether it be meeting another woman or his work or his home or his hobbies or his volunteerism or whatever. And he reports that he is much better now, almost instantly, than from all those months of therapy. And the most powerful example of this is my father. My father is a Holocaust survivor, and I grew up knowing probably two dozen Holocaust survivors. And they, like in most things, they were, you know, a, a normal distribution, a range. There were some people who all they did was talk about the Holocaust, the, 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 their anger about the Nazis, beware, you can't forget it, watch out, they're still going to do it again. They attended Holocaust remembrances, they attended Holocaust groups. That group of people were in general far more unhappy, and maybe they started that way, but certainly they ended up far more unhappy than people like my dad, who is my role model, corny as though that may be, because he said the most important thing to me he's ever said in terms of mental health, it healed him and I think it'll heal you. It has a good chance of healing you. He said, Martin, the Nazis took five years from my life. I won't give them one minute more. He said, Martin, never look back. 
always take the next step forward. And that advice has helped not only my dad and the many Holocaust survivors who suffered enormous, obviously, the, the scars of the Holocaust tortures, suffered far more than most of us will ever suffer, and it helped them heal. And, and certainly that advice has helped so many of my clients heal, and me, to keep from, from getting my, when crap happens to all of us, including the me. But when crap happens to me, I take a moment, and literally, this is not to sound sanctimonious, it's just my honest truth. I take just a moment to ask myself, is there a lesson to be learned from this? If not, I suppress it. When I screw up, I just suppress it. And I say, okay, what's my next baby step forward? What's my next baby step forward? Moment to moment to moment. I'm no Buddhist, but that concept of being in the moment, not looking back because there's little you can do about that, and not looking too far in the future because so much can change, but mainly focusing on the moment. Yeah, a little mild planning is fine. But there may be nothing as central to your mental health and that of your kids and other loved ones than following my father's advice. Never look back. Always take the next step forward. Um, less important, but I also, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about it. A lot of people's anxiety and um, uh, even mild depression, and I'm not talking about major depression, which may require drugs, may even require electroconvulsive therapy or deep brain stimulation or whatever. I'm not talking about that. But mild depression, sometimes they call it dysthymia, uh, and it, mild anxiety is often, in addition to this method of what I call suppress and distract, you may well be served by, you know, exercise can help, but you don't have to go crazy with it. Frequent walks can be very stress reducing. So exercise can be helpful. But maybe most important is turning your attention away from yourself. You remember I said that one of the negative side effects of therapy is often, not always, a tendency to be self-absorbed. So if you can turn your attention outside, to not your own self-absorbed and or potentially even narcissistic needs, but to helping others, whether at work or in your volunteer work, a friend, a family, whatever, um, that can be very healing of that mild anxiety. And also staying super busy, filling your day with constructive activities. I One of my favorite comments that a client had when I suggested that he do that, and he ended up filling much of his, his days with, with activities instead of ruminating about his anxiety. I asked him at the next session, I said, um, how's your anxiety doing? He says, I'm too busy to be anxious. I loved it. Not that that's going to always work. Nothing always works. But that is a great technique. And this reminds me of a uh, uh, the famous psychiatrist Carl Menninger, who ran the Menninger Clinic in, in uh, somewhere in the Midwest, I think Kansas. And he had a conference, and uh, a bunch of psychotherapists were uh, were there. And now it's time for the question and answer period. And somebody raises their hand, one of the psychotherapists, <clears throat> and says, uh, you know, and he describes some patient who had very severe anxiety and uh, sadness and whatever, and uh, everybody was expecting uh, a manager to say, well, he needs uh, long-term psychotherapy. And manager said, the thing that will probably most heal him is to get him out of his head and instead focus on helping others. And I have found that to be inordinately true. Uh, let's see, is there anything else I want to say about mental health? Um, a little bit of also self-acceptance. We are largely, certainly nobody would argue that we're not significantly uh, a function of our genetics. You know, we're learning the things like impulse control, even political persuasion, 
are, are at least partly under genetic control. So one of the other things that's really pretty important is is self acceptance. No, if you're in a, a phys if you're you know a, a somebody killing people or abusing people or mean spirited and otherwise malevolent, no, you do need to take start taking baby steps to improve. But or even cold turkey, like as in sometimes people are, are best off stopping drug taking by going cold turkey. Or maybe if you have really had a, a negative attitude towards people and toward life, trying a cold turkey. But um, apart from those incremental attempts to improve, within a if your behavior is you know maybe not typically average or normal, but is a little bit deviant, quote unquote, some self acceptance is appropriate. For example, I am more intense and faster talking than 90% of people. And yes, when I was younger, I tried to slow down because I wanted to fit in more. But as I've gotten older, I've just accepted that's who I am. And so when I'm doing this with you here, I am trying to model this as self-acceptance. I'm not trying to slow down and talk like a radio talk show host. I'm being my real self. I have a strength, which is I can think on my feet. So I don't script anything, which gives the, so I'm playing to my strengths, but accepting my weaknesses and saying, okay, this is the package. I'm doing my best. If it's not good enough for an individual listener, change the channel. You don't like me, think I'm, you know, too intense, too fast, whatever, fine. Change your mind, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't like me, hate me, whatever you need to do. But I think that within a fairly wide range, accepting of your difference, your, 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 if you have a tendency to being really counterculture or a tendency to being very, uh, you know, pillar of the community, you know, that be a, you're a banker type, you're, you're conservative politically, you're a, uh, you know, you're, you're a rule follower. You know, some of that's hardwired as we're learning. Accept yourself and surround yourself, not exclusively necessarily, but with people who are both kind of like you and who are like you and who bring out the best in you, who make you feel pretty good about who you are. Last thing I want to talk about in this show about health is preparing for doctor's appointment. Um, there's nothing that scares me more than my annual physical because I know I'm only a blood test away uh, uh, or a, a physical exam symptom away from a, a terrible diagnosis. I'm very grateful I just had my annual exam and got two thumbs up. See you next year, she said. Fantastic. But it's very important to prepare for your exam. I really suppress it. I hate even thinking about it until about a week before. And then starting a week before, I have a, a file, a Word, Microsoft Word file on my computer that's called doctor. Per, C colon personal backslash doctor. And, and when I, and I write down, I go top to bottom of my head. I think from the top to the bottom. Do I have any questions about anything from my head, my eyes, my nose, my, all the way down to the bottom. And I also think through my day from the minute I wake up till the minute I go to sleep and, you know, and maybe even during my sleep, do I have any questions there? So I've systematically gone through and made a list of my questions. Um, and I bring those questions with me in writing because while I have a very good memory, I get nervous. I'm very nervous in the doctor's office. I also, we all, you know, we, we can be adaptive about how we treat our doctor's appointment. For example, I get so nervous because I, for the reason I said that, you know, when you go to the doctor's office, you're just one, one blood test away from a death sentence. So I'm really nervous. So I don't let them take, for example, my blood pressure in the, in the doctor's office. I have a little blood pressure machine at home. I take it, I don't know, once a week, once a month, maybe once a month, maybe tw you know, 12 times during a year. And I bring the printout so that I get a much more, so the doctor gets a much more realistic uh, estimate of what my real blood pressure is, which thank God is good. So 
adapt adapt your doctor's appointments to your to to your needs. The question thing is really certainly a, a good idea. Um, and if you're going to be if you're going to if you're not going to be able to remember because doctors can sometimes talk very fast in very high level language, you know, then bring somebody with you to the appointment. Anyway, those are my thoughts on how to prepare. And so now I want to end the show as I uh, end every show, um, reminding you, um, this is Marty Nemco. Uh, and remind, remind, that's not, you don't need to be reminded of that. That's not important. But reminding you that we do find comfort, especially in this era where there is a lot of group thinking going on. We find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. For comments on the show or to consult with Marty Nemco, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. How to Do Life is produced by Marty Nemco. Post-production, Mel Baker. Music from the Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening.